Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It is good to be together today. And don't be pinning the snow on me. I just want to say that right now. When you hear the word peace, what's the first thing that comes to you mind? Think about it. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word peace? For me, to be honest, it's the war in Ukraine. It's what's happening in Israel, in Sudan, in Yemen, and in Syria. Can we close the doors? Thank you. My heart grows heavy when I think of these things. And in our world today, peace seems to be absolutely so elusive. Never mind the wars that are going on. What about the unrest in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our neighborhoods around us? I came across a poem written by a Ukrainian soldier from the front line on my Twitter feed on, on or around Remembrance Day, because I, I remember very distinctly we were in Ukraine. Gord Giesbrecht was with us. He was wearing a poppy. And it was interesting because, again, the cultural significance was that they're asking, why are you wearing a poppy? And so we began to talk. And then in my feed came up this, this poem written by a soldier who was at the front. And I remember in my mind, I was going to take a picture of it because it was so poignant. Being a historical buff as well and seeing his feelings come out in, in words, it, it it was interesting, but it got me thinking as I began to reflect on today's life lesson. That, you know, every year, November 11th, as Canadians, we pause to hold a moment of silence at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month to remember all the men and the women who have died in any conflict and who still continue to serve our country during times of war and conflict and peace. You know, and it's interesting because during these times, we often hear poetry recited. Poetry called like uh, In Flanders Fields, maybe you're familiar with that, by John McRae. Or there's another one called The Soldier by Rupert Brooke. There's another one that um, this poem in its entirety may not be familiar to everybody, but the middle lines definitely stand out. It's called For the Fallen by Lawrence Binion. And the quotes we often hear is that they shall not grow old and we will remember them. And so some of the most famous and most frequently quoted poetry comes actually out of World War I. And what is especially true of modern war poetry, because that's what it's called, is that these lines are often filled with cries for peace, but also there's lamenting and descriptions of the horrors of war. War poetry. Now, it's almost Christmas, and uh, your mind probably doesn't normally jump to thoughts about war. Maybe it does. Maybe you're riveted to see what's going on in our global aspect. But as you start receiving Christmas cards in the mail, chances are you're going to receive at least one card with a quote from Isaiah that says, For unto us a child is born. And what might not be immediately obvious is that in those lines are lines from a war poem. 
The Bible has war poems as well. Our passage this morning is Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. And it's, it's a war poem. Like modern war poems, it's a poem about peace. And as I classify this as a war poem, I'm not trying to be creative at all. I'm, I'm trying to help us move past this myth and sentimentality behind our culture's association with Christmas. I want us to move past the sentimental hallmark movie sayings and see the reality that the season of Christmas and what it points to. And the Bible is not just full of little nice moralistic stories. The Bible's full of writings from people like you, like me, who were in situations not unlike what we find ourselves in. The Bible's full of people who lived through real human suffering and horror. They lived through violence, the violence of war, slavery, oppression, adultery, murder, sickness, disease. And they were real people in real situations at real moments in time. And so this Advent, when we talk about hope and peace and joy and love, we're not just talking about nice little sentimental ideals. We're talking about real concrete issues. We're talking about real concrete ways that God has moved into human history and what it means for us today. Now, before we go into our text, let me explain the historical aspect in which we find ourselves, the situation of which the text in Isaiah is actually speaking to us. It refers to a time of darkness right off the beginning. Well, what's the darkness referring to? It's most likely it's referring back to the Assyrian invasion and the deportation of Israel back in 733 BC. That's the context. That's the war and the impending Assyrian invasion. Now, here's your, here's your little history lesson. The kingdom of Israel was split, right? Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah's surrounded by Israel. It's surrounded by smaller other nations. And the big threat, the big military power of the day, the Assyrians, which was now modern-day Iraq, you know, was, was coming in upon them. And so Israel, the northern nation, and all these other surrounding nations feared that threat of invasion. And what they did is they formed an anti-Assyrian alliance. And they began to pressure Judah, south of them, to join but Judah was led by a guy by the name of King Ahaz, and he refuses. And when he refused to join their anti-Assyrian alliance, the other nations then turned on Judah, and they began to attack them. And when this happened, uh, back in Isaiah 7 verse 2, we read this. We read that now the house of David was told, Aram had, has allies itself, allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken with wind. In other words, when everybody starts turning against Judah, King Ahaz is terrified. All the people are now terrified. It's in that moment, God actually talks to Ahaz and he promises him that if Judah just trusts in him, if Judah just trusts in the Lord, they would be saved and nothing will happen to Jerusalem. And God warned them. He warned them that the other nations who sought peace and security in their own military alliances would see destruction. 
Why? Because they were trusting in the world for protection rather than trusting in God. God always wants to be that person. Trust in me and I'll see you through. So Ahaz now finds himself being attacked by his neighbors. What does he do? He disobeys God. And he sends a messenger to the king of Assyria. He sends a message to Iraq, pleading for them to come and rescue them. You can read it all in 2 Kings chapter 16. But if that's not bad enough, not only does he send a message, Ahab now then takes money from the temple. He takes money from the national treasury and he gives it to the king of Assyria. And what has happened in that moment is now a complete betrayal to God. Ahaz essentially steals money from God and begs for some other nation to come and to save them. That's the context of what we're seeing here in Isaiah. So Assyria responds by invading the northern kingdom of Israel, gets them all up, deports them, gets rid of them in 733. And Assyria now ends up at Judah's doorstep and there's nothing that's going to stop them and their advance. Are they going to trust in a measly little political alliance that means nothing to this tiny little nation? Do they think, well, you look at you just continue to pay off our king and it's going to prevent us from conquering your region? No, of course not. And what do they do? They move in. So we see that King Ahaz sought peace. He looked for security apart from God. And he lost everything. One commentator said this, and I thought it's fascinating. Alternative ways of salvation always end in destruction. Alternative ways of salvation always end in destruction. Well, you can even read in Proverbs chapter 8, 36, but those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. And when we read the scriptures, we look at King Ahaz, and we know that he had skill. We know that he had diplomatic experience. But unfortunately, he trusts in his own resources. He trusts in his own policies and his own power. And because he took things into his own hands, this led to a total catastrophe of not just himself, but his entire nation of Judah. And so this Advent, we focus on the word peace. And so here's my question for the week. You can write this down or take a picture of the screen. Are we seeking peace and security apart from God? Are we seeking peace and security apart from God? And think about it this way. Are are we seeking peace in the result of our new provincial election? Am I stepping on toes already? Come on, just relax. Merry Christmas. Because all we needed was a change in government. Or maybe we're looking for peace in national security. Or maybe we're looking for peace in the stock market, right? When the, the market changes and when the interest rates fall. Or maybe I'll be looking for peace if my health is 100%. You know, do we live our life saying, basically, if these things are accomplished and dealt with, then then you know what? Then I will have peace. However, if I, you know, I'll say this. If we find that we can't have peace in the absence of those things, then we've just revealed that God is not in his rightful place in our heart. 
We're all sinful. Get in line. We all are. And as sinful beings, we're all prone to seek peace and to seek security in things that are apart from God. We do. But we can only have peace by trusting in God and in his provision. And God's provision of peace is found in the Christ child. And this war poem we read in Isaiah is about peace and it points us clearly to Jesus. The poem begins in darkness and then there's this progression and we read, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2 goes on and says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. <clears throat> they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So the Messiah, Jesus, has come. He's bringing joy to the nations. This is what Isaiah is bringing up. In verses 4 and 5, we move from war imagery to liberty and peace. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So you get a mental picture of this bar weighing down over their shoulders. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The point is, is that Jesus is the one who's going to liberate people from slavery to sin and death. Verse 4 alludes to the previous military victories led by God. The freedom of the yoke and the burden of slavery in Egypt and God's victory over Midian in the book of Judges. We see it lifted off of them. The same God who worked these mighty acts in the past is going to work to bring peace through the Messiah. Isaiah is trying to get people's heads together here. The Messiah is ushering into this new era of peace. And when the war is over, there's no need for these garments and gear of war. They're thrown into the fire. They're burnt. Now in verse 6, we come to the Christmas card. Or Handel's Messiah, whatever association your brain goes first. To my office.
<laughs> you did it way better than me. <laughs> Gotta love Handel's Messiah. Come on, half of you all started, you're going, what, what was, does he actually listen to classical music? Yeah, I'm a metalhead, but I do like classical. I like everything. Mongolian throat music, no, you know, whatever. It's all there. Gregorian chant, the pen, my staff think I'm crazy. It doesn't matter, but the way Handel brings the scripture alive. And here we see now the contrast of the burden of the government oppression being on their shoulders with the burden of the government now going on Jesus' shoulders. One is the image of the government pressing down. The other is the image of rising up. And with Jesus, there is no more oppression or burdens on our backs. In Matthew 11, 18, 30, Jesus offers this wonderful invitation to all of us who are burdened. He says, come to me, all who labor are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest. What's rest? Peace for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus has shattered the burden of oppression and slavery to sin and death. And in his peaceable kingdom, he has laid on us this easy yoke, this yoke of rest. And then in verse 6, it speaks of this fourfold name of Jesus. And Isaiah previously had called Jesus Emmanuel, right? Meaning God with us. And here he, he gives us now a series of four names also used to describe the Savior, used to describe the Messiah. And he will be called, and I love the way the handle does it, there's no other equal. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Like you feel it, the staccato, the emphasis in the voice. And these names remind us of who God is. When we look at Wonderful Counselor, some translations bring, break it down to two separate thoughts, as in, he's wonderful, but he's also a counselor. It's not quite right. It's a single idea. The word literally means wonder counselor. The word wonder that, that is used there is used in the Old Testament and other places to refer to the supernatural acts of God. So think of it in particular like the parting of the Red Sea or water coming from the rock, right? Works of wonder. And when this word is attached to counselor as it is in this situation, it means supernatural counselor, one giving supernatural counsel. And if you're like me, my mind always jumped to therapy when I hear the word counselor. However, the primary image in this passage is not therapeutic at all. The image of counsel here is more like that of a wise king, his plans, his purposes, and that Jesus' wisdom is supernatural. It surpasses human wisdom. It's knowledge, and Jesus is the world's true king, the world's true expert. And in our government system, our political leaders have advisors, they have counselors, right, or councils, and they set up to give our leaders guidance. However, God in his perfection doesn't need a table of advisors. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And though Jesus doesn't need counselors, he offers us his wise counsel. 
Romans, oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Paul's writing this, and now what does he do in the next verse? He actually quotes Isaiah. And who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? This helps us reorientate us to a reality when we feel ourselves being drawn to start trusting in things other than God. As we have to ask ourselves, is my trust, is my trust, is my hope anchored in the depths and riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God? Or am I putting it in something else? Then there's mighty God. And again, this is a military reference. It's a guarantee of the preservation of his people. Not only is God wise, but he's powerful enough to liberate his people from his enemies. And Jesus would decisively defeat, defeat the power of sin and death on the cross by trampling over death in his resurrection. That's the Messiah. We then have the everlasting father. And the Old Testament does not often refer to God as father. But when it does, it refers to God's covenant relationship with his people. He provides them with loving care and discipline as a father. One of Jesus' favorite names for God is father. And what's interesting is that Jesus addresses God as father, but he is also, right? Jesus, the Messiah, is what? We just read it. The everlasting father. Well, how can the two be the same? Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. We read of the point where Jesus shares in the divine identity. Then came the festival of dedication at the Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, just simply plainly tell us. And Jesus said, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. I don't need to add any more commentary. And then we have the Prince of Peace. Prince here means ruler or official. Sometimes it actually refers to military leader, which would make sense in the context that we find it. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The empire will not expand through conquests and violent bloodshed and war, but the empire is going to expand through peace. And the only bloodshed spilt in the Messiah's conquest will be his own blood on the cross for both you and me. And so this is the kind of ruler that Jesus is. He's wise, he's strong, he's loving, he produces peace and all that goes with it. And then we come to verse 7, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And as Jesus reigns, 
His spread of peace increases. As he rules, his peace slowly permeates all of reality. And this is very different from earth, earthly rulers. Imagine, of the increase of Trudeau's administration, there will be no end. You might think that's cause for celebration or despair, depending on what side you vote. Right? Human authority is prone to corruption or ineffectiveness the longer one is in power. We see that right now around the world. And hence, one of the reasons our systems of government implemented terms uh, on executive power is so that this corruption would stay away, but not so with Jesus. He sits on David's throne forever, the king eternal. But unlike the kingdom of this world, he is not prone to corruption. And his kingdom of peace will be established forever and upheld in righteousness and justice, a word that we, we all crave, especially now. And this is the positive effect of biblical peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which means wholeness, being complete. And biblically, peace, shalom, is not just the absence of war, but it includes the positive presence of something else. And here, Jesus' peaceful rule is upheld in righteousness, it's upheld in justice, and Jesus brings restoration and wholeness. So biblically, there are actually a number of different dimensions of peace. There's the future peace. A fulfillment when Jesus' peace permeates the whole of reality. It's coming. That's what we hope for. This peace. The second coming of Jesus. For the fullness of the kingdom of God to come here on this earth. And this will happen at Jesus' second coming. And so we have a future peace coming, and that's what we hope for. We've got to realize that peace now begins with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So gaining peace with God is not acquiring an intellectual checklist of a set of facts prove to me prove to me that god jesus exists salvation is a factual reality and so much so it can be comprehended with our minds and it can be expressed with our words but there's no transformation in mere information in other words justification through faith means a transfer of our trust from ourself to God it's an act of submission it's an act of our will so peace with God through Jesus Christ comes when we give our heart allegiance to him as our Lord and Savior and we ask him for the forgiveness of our sin and we submit to him as Lord of our lives peace begins with God Ephesians 2 14 it says he himself is our peace he has broken down every dividing wall of hostility and reconciles us to God through his blood on the cross. So not only did Jesus give and create peace, he himself is our peace. Peace is not just a benefit we receive, but it's a part of who God is. Think about that. And for those who belong to God, to experience his presence really is to experience his peace. 
And so peace with God then brings the peace of God. Philippians 4, and how many times have I talked about this passage? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. What does it do? It guards our hearts and it guards our minds in Christ Jesus. Now listen to me. I understand there are many factors in our feelings of anxiety. We are complex human beings. Most of us have brains. And our brains run on electricity and chemicals, as well as on thoughts. We have souls. We have wills that make choices. And all, how all this works is really another mystery. That nobody can fully understand it. That's the complexity of us. And so we can make choices that actually impact our brains. So that there are certain feelings, such as anxiety, that in some cases can actually become ingrained in us. And so whether the reasons for our anxiety are complex choices or habits or chemicals. Or the reasons are even very simple. When we break it all down, we're just worrying about the future. We're not trusting God. And I have good news. Because there is something that we can do to impact our anxiety level to experience his peace. To focus on the glory of God rather than on the things that make us anxious. And I say that easily. And I'm not ignorant of the enormous difficulty of living that way when circumstances are tough. And when the future feels uncertain in our lives. I get it. You know, confession here, I'm not done well living that way at times in the past myself. But I'm convinced it's true. That God gives his peace in place of anxiety. But our role is to set our minds and our hearts into his direction. Your own experience might cause you to doubt the validity of Philippians 4. But there are many things that are true that we do not experience fully. And the fact that it's true means that our experience can change and improve if we move in the direction of truth. In other words, you must not measure what could be true for your life by what has been true in your life. Let me say that again. You must not measure what could be true for your life by what has been true in your life. Because if you do, you will never experience anything new. Measure by what God has said, not merely by your own past experiences. Your perspective on the future must be shaped by what God is going to do in the future. So as believers, we have surrendered ourselves to God. We have been reconciled to him through faith. And to experience his presence is to experience peace. And so his presence becomes this comforting reality. I've shared it numerous times, the story of us, Sharon and I, and us losing our fifth baby. I shared how this passage in 
Philippians was my one passage that got me through. When I couldn't pray anymore and my wife was curled up in the field position and we were struggling with all the diagnoses that were coming our way and our world wasn't making sense. And the only thing I could pray was peace. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Peace. Peace. A comforting presence reality of Jesus in our lives. And how many of us today need peace? We heard already today, John 16, where Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus doesn't promise the absence of trouble, but he offers peace in the midst of trouble. How many of us need that peace in the midst? And, and that peace he offers is found in himself. It's in himself. It's found in his own presence. Peace. And we have to have the confidence that God is in control of the future. And it doesn't lead to passivity, but rather activity, action, without anxiety. And again, anxiety can be a nagging nuisance or a life-destroying monster. It can be. But we have to be reminded that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And we have to turn away from all that robs us in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives of His glory because those very same things rob us of His peace. So peace with God leads to the peace of God, which then actually leads to peace with others. And we can experience the peace of the kingdom now, so to speak. You know, we wait and we long for the fulfillness of peace. We long for the return of Jesus. We long for when every tear will be wiped away, when everything is done, every heartache is dealt with. And last week I mentioned that our waiting isn't boring waiting. It's active participation. We hope, right? We have a hope. It's active participation. So as we wait for the fullness of this kingdom of peace, we as believers are the peacemakers living in God's kingdom. We have an obligation as believers to be peacemakers. And we know that the Bible also speaks of peace in our interpersonal relationships. Colossians 3 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. Romans says, If possible, so far as it depends on you. I love this verse. Live peaceably with all. Over the last couple of years, society has certainly given us an opportunity to try to practice this. Racial tension, intense political polarization... The virus. And it's just not worth it to lose a relationship over these things. And as people of God, we are called to be one body. We are called to be united in love. And we need to be people who extend peace and grace to one another. And as for family members or people at work who are difficult to deal with, Paul didn't guarantee living at peace. But he says, as long as it's possible, as long as it depends on you, so long as it's in your power. Think about that. Do what you can to live at peace with others. 
I had a really difficult relationship not too long ago. Well, long ago. Let's put it that way. And God had to do a major work in my heart, leading me to being in a place of not being bitter from the fallout. And God at one point actually prompted me to approach this individual and attempt to extend an olive branch. That's not my human nature. But when I did that, and I extended the olive branch, it was rejected. But God freed me at that very moment. I could go on serving God with a clear conscience. I had done in what was in my power to live at peace with everybody and somebody. Because wisdom requires discernment in our lives. And at that moment, wisdom said to me, drop it. You've done your part. You extended the olive branch. It wasn't received. You're free. Okay, let's move on. It takes two to make a relationship. It takes one to break the relationship. Our responsibility is to pay attention to our part, our role in interpersonal relationships interpersonal peace it's my responsibility to take my own part in peace especially as a disciple of Jesus and there are people you cannot live at peace with and there are others you should try not to because they are dangerous and they don't want peace maybe they want to continue to harm you but this verse speaks to those situations when the possibility of peace falls into your cord when it depends on you. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, one of the one another verses, tells us to live in peace with each other, with one another. Talking to the church. And so all of these calls for peace give the distinct impression that this is not just something that happens. Peace is something that we have to work hard towards. But notice in these verses, the call to peace is not just trying to cover over our conflict so that no one thinks we have conflict, which is actually hypocrisy. But peace means being honest about it and working through our conflicts in love so that we all have good relationships with, live with each other and live in harmony with one another. And this takes work. We're to work hard at this so that we can work together, especially as believers, as one body, so that we can get along as a family. And so peace with God brings the peace of God into our hearts, and that then should naturally bring peace with others. So let me return to the question I asked earlier. And really, it's a question of contentment. Are we seeking peace and security apart from God? Or are we seeking peace in Christ? And what does a difference actually look like in reality? How do you know if you're actually seeking peace in Christ or peace from things in the world? That's a valid question. Because the answer is that both can look pretty similar above the surface, but underneath the surface, it, that's 
where the rubber hits the road because that's a different story. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Your heavenly father knows what you need and you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So seeking God's peace is not opposed to material goods, food, clothing, shelter. He's not saying you shouldn't be concerned in any way of those things. Jesus said, God knows you need those things. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to want some clothes. Not, don't have a problem with that. But he's raising the question of ultimate value. And ultimately, where is our trust? And Jesus later would compare a house built on sand with one built on the rock. And above the surface, the houses may look the same. They may look identical. But beneath the surface, as we know in that story, it tells us a different story. And a time of testing will come and begins to expose the foundation. And as stress has compounded even this year, at your work, in your investments, in your housing, in your familial relationships, the foundations of our hearts becomes exposed. And as these foundations are exposed, that can create a sense of alarm and stress or it will create a sense of peace. Now, I don't know all the circumstances of all your lives. And you may not, or you may have, very well have a good reason not to have peace. There are many things that maybe create anxiety for you. That would probably do it for anyone. But here's my prayer for you. That you would experience the Prince of Peace. peace my prayer for you is that peace would permeate every area of your life and if you're sensing alarm and if you're being triggered or whatever I don't mean that disparagingly just maybe you're lacking some peace and maybe that's where we need to invite God to come in and maybe that's the starting point to get right with God maybe for some it's to repent and to confess your sin of misplaced trust and security and again if we draw near to him scripture says that he will draw near to us and so the gift of God's presence think about this the gift of God's presence provides us with the greatest sense of peace. I'm going to ask you to do something. Bow your heads. Don't look around. Breathe the word peace in your own way, as loud as you want, <laughs> as quiet as you want. But as you're saying it, have a picture of God there. Peace. Now, what are the things in your life that are going upside down? What are the things in your life that are causing you stress and anxiety? Maybe it's your work, it's decisions, 
It's your mortgage going 100,000 miles an hour. It's your, it's your familial situation. It's your neighbor who's driving you crazy. Whatever it is, it's your health diagnosis. It's your financial situation, whatever it is. Invite God to cover it with peace. There's something about speaking God's peace into our lives. By the tender mercy of our God, love has broken upon us. And light is given where there was once darkness and hope where there was only death. And so we're going to go into this season, no, season knowing that God will guide our feet into the way of peace. So remember, soul, that God who created you in his divine image <clears throat> sends you out. So in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So go, soul, to reflect the presence of our Creator to everyone you meet. Go to bring healing to a broken world. And now may the peace of God, which is beyond all human understanding, be upon you. The peace of Christ, which breaks down barriers, be within you and the peace of the Holy Spirit which creates true fellowship be among you now go and live the church and embrace peace amen